0: Welcome to episode 121 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses. My name is Kelly. And I'm Dermot. How are you today, Dermot? Very good. Great. Well, we have a real barnstormer of a podcast here today, but before we get into that, some business. First of all, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. We are a blog as well as a podcast, and we have a new blog post up entitled, Raw Head and Bloody Bones in the Burton. Can you tell us a little bit about that blog post, Dermot? Yes, it's the
1: episode where Bloom walks into the immoral pub. Yeah, the immoral pub. And by
0: immoral, I, t- I just
1: think he means working class men. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the he doesn't like all the, like like both of us, he's very sensitive to, yes. what's the word? Misophonia. Misophonia. yeah. And uh, some readers are, they will already be flinching.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. No, okay. i I okay. don't people, like that. People who don't. <laughs> <laughs> see? You <laughs> see <laughs> Okay. So tor- so we're already torturing our listeners. So yeah, and I think Dermot's hot take about, you know, kind of the the working class symbolism of that scene um is something I get into in a maybe a more uh critical way than a hot take kind of way. But um, Dermot has done some artwork, and I'd like him to describe the artwork.
1: Yeah, I drew, uh, because there's a reference to Rawhead, uh, Rawhead Rex. No, Rawhead and Bloody rawhead Bones. Rawhead and Bloody Bones, also known as, I think, Rawhead Rex. Oh, okay. And, Would you uh, care to explain what that is? Okay, so my father, I've mentioned this before, my grandmother used to terrify my dad when he was a kid with tales of Rawhead and Bloody Bones. And it can't because it just conjures up this wonderful image. I and my dad would chase us around the house. We had a very small house in Arclon. He would chase us around as raw head and bloody bones, doing this amazing like like hand over his head kind of move, <laughs> and you'd you'd imagine the flaps of skin <laughs> falling off him, you know, Uh terrify us. So anyway, that was uh, our my childhood experience of raw head and bloody bones. And then you find out I found out a couple of things There is a very bad 1980s horror movie Called Rawhead Rex mm-hmm. Shot in County Wicklow And But it's also apparently An old English Fairly well known English folk horror mm-hmm. That mothers used to Terrify their children with Because mm-hmm. they said If you don't behave Rawhead and Bloody Bones Will get you mm-hmm. And Rawhead and Bloody Bones Hides under the stairs Crunching on the bones Of naughty children
0: Like Harry Potter Yep So <laughs>
1: And, and the article was was very sad about the fact that a lot of these folk horrors had been mm-hmm. lost to time. So it's nice that this one, because this one for me is a personal family connection. Mm. Um, but also, I think my grandmother's surname—I'm not going to say it—but it, it very, very English, mm. um, and she was very Irish. She was very Republican. She really hated the British Empire with a passion. But she had the most English possible surname. It's very strange. But that—I I wonder if she carried that story through the, her English grandparents or great-grandparents or whoever that came down to her and so it, it may be more common in the pale like on the mm-hmm. east coast of the country but it's i've read that it's more common in county Wicklow. Mm-hmm. that's a little folk horror and um, but i love the fact that it's mentioned a couple of times twice in like, ulysses loved yeah. It. yeah
0: yeah in this passage in lestragonians and then also in uh Cersei, stephen refers to the ghoulish specter of his mother as right. raw head and bloody bones chewer of corpses all that mm-hmm. uh so you you put a lot of that family history and in that into your image that you did for it, or yes.
1: yeah. So it's a big green raw head monster, and I could have made him his head a bit more raw, but it's fairly raw. And he's chomping on a big broth of, of um, I should have put bones in there. No, he has a bone, he has he's, a bone in his yeah. left hand, so it should have been blood on the bone, but anyway. Um, yeah, no, it's pretty ghastly. And then poor Bloom is silhouetted in the doorway going, Oh, god, no, I'm getting out of here. So, mm-hmm. yeah
0: okay so if anybody would like to see your artwork or if they'd like to read the blog post what should they do go to bloomsandbarnacles.com all right um and i would also say check out our um socials because i post a lot of Dermot's artwork especially on our instagram i think if you want to find us that's the best place to go right now because that seems to be where people are seeing our work Mm. um also, if you are interested in following us on Blue Sky as a Twitter alternative, I have codes. Just send me an email, bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. Yeah, and, you really? uh, mm. But you have to promise to follow me and and uh, write a gushing comment <laughs> <laughs> under every post. Um, we're also on YouTube. I don't plug our YouTube channel enough, but yeah. you can see Dermot's artwork in most of these places. So Yeah, just go to YouTube,
1: um, type in bloomsandbarnacles and you'll find
0: yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all the big, you know, socials, you find us there. Yeah. Um, we have a few shout outs then. Um, first of all, thank you if you've donated to us in the, the last cycle. Uh, thank you so much to all of our patrons over at Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash barnaclecast. If you'd like to support us monetarily, you can do that or drop a one time donation on PayPal. Thank you to the folks who've done that recently as well. Um, you can find links for all that on our website
1: dot com
0: In the upper right-hand corner. And if you are already a patron, um, our October Patreon bonus episode is maybe one of my favorite episodes we've ever done, where I talk to a scholar named Ryan Kerr uh, about his article about... Um, black, pa- fi- uh, Blackface Performers and Minstrel Shows as they show up in Ulysses. I-, I provocatively entitled it, Why Aren't There Any Black Characters in Ulysses? But we do genuinely answer that question in the course of the episode. Um, so I encourage you to check that out. Um, you can also follow us via our newsletter, um, which there's a-, a link to sign up for that at our website. LipsofMiracles.com And uh, of course, if you'd like to support us in a non-monetary fashion, rate and review us at your favorite, uh, you know, podcast repository or, uh, you know, honestly, tell a friend like that. That's that's the best, Um, you know, drop us a comment, send us an email. Um, And speaking of emails, we got a great email from Max about our most one of our recent episodes, the one where we talked about H.G. Wells. I believe that's the the grandeur that was Rome. And I think that'll be the episode just before this. Anyway, I'd like, this is really a Dermot topic, which makes me excited too, because I like when there's some business for Dermot to take <laughs> care of. Um, so Dermot's going to read Max's email and then uh, respond to it.
1: Yeah, I made some comment about Churchill gassing the Kurds. which you know, yeah. uh, There's an offhand remark in a recent episode about H.G. Wells and how he was a liberal. He wasn't a Tory like Churchill gassing the Kurds. It probably reinforces the points being made about H.G. Wells and British imperialism, a phenomenon supported across the political spectrum. That at the time he was gassing the Kurds, he was a liberal in David Lloyd George's liberal government. He only switched back to the Tories in 1925, and I think he was chancellor of the Exchequer, so probably not gassing anyone, hopefully. So, yeah, no, he was. Uh, he started as a conservative, becomes a liberal. And, and then this he is goes, Winston Churchill. Winston, then he goes back to the conservatives again, and there's an, um, which is true. Um, and, yeah, you look at... If you look, if you use terms like, as I prefer to do, which I know drives some people nuts, like in the actual way, like liberal as in classical mm-hmm. liberal and uh, conservative as in like Burkean conservative, mm-hmm. then you get closer to the bone a little bit. So, um, yeah, the liberals, the British liberals and the British conservatives would have been very, very similar in terms of how they related to the empire. And a lot of books that I've read, like some, some people were against the empire in the empire, but nevertheless, it didn't stop it from growing. And uh, even when they were in charge, you know. So you have some of the worst crimes against the Irish happening under liberal government. So it's not like you can map presentist terms, you can map modern day terms back onto Mm -hmm. these people who would be very dangerous to do that. Um, Trying to think where it's going with that. But um, yeah, so anyway, uh, old Churchill, I would recommend, I'd be the first to jump on Churchill. (laughs) But having said that, there's a lot about his life that I enjoy. I've read My Early Life. Which is a fun read mm-hmm. and uh, it's it was the basis for the movie Young Winston, which is a great, great movie to watch while understanding that he did all these horrible things because none of that gets into the movie really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, no, he's an interesting character, but yeah, from from Irish points, like Lloyd George as well, a liberal uh, did a lot of damage to this country um, by by really not understanding the people. Same with Balfour and all the other stuff that they tripped, mm-hmm. you know, tripped off Sykes-Pico and all the rest of it. So, yeah, no, that's about that, I think. And if there's anything else I wanted to say about old Winnie Pooh. Um,
0: oh, <laughs> wow! Well, that nickname is going to be the form my nightmare takes tonight. <laughs> oh, God.
1: Massive alcoholic. Okay. Bottle of champagne for breakfast every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He wouldn't have survived the modern world. Not with his Twitter feed. <laughs> Right.
0: I thought you were going to say with the increasing price of champagne. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: could well afford it. Unlike Boris Johnson, half American, an American, one American parent. Mm. So, so he could have he in theory been president of America. Maybe.
0: Was de Valera American as he well? He was
1: half American, born oh, cool. halfway across the Atlantic. Okay. and So he's yeah, truly mid-Atlantic. Yeah, mid-Atlantic. And that saved his life in 1916. The Brits didn't want to execute uh, uh, somebody who might be okay. seen as an American.
0: So. All right.
1: Yeah, there's a whole phenomenon of the um, the, the kind of uh, epic-type leaders who come from outside. Mm-hmm. Right about that years ago, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like the outsider who comes in, um, mm-hmm. like devalera Valera, Binguam, yeah. um Lawrence of Arabia, people like that who, like, who often get like, lumped in now as white saviors. But it's the other way of looking at it is they're outsiders who mm-hmm. come in And because they're such an outsider, people look at them, like, from a weird angle. Mm -hmm. And so they can do things that,
0: like, locals Mm. might not be able to do. This is inspiring me right now. Yeah, it's true. Uh, Look for my presidential (laughs) candidacy (laughs) of Ireland in 2045. Vote for me, guys. Mm, (laughs) Vote early, vote often, as they say in Chicago. All right. Anything else to say about Winston Uh, Churchill? I don't think so. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about this episode. Uh, There's not a whole lot to say i mean we say it in the episode um so this is the, the audio recording of our september live show that was part of the joyce nights festival at the james joyce tower and museum in sandy cove south of dublin you'll know it as the martello tower that is in the first page of Ulysses. Um, And uh, so they had a little festival out there last month um, to mark the nights that Joyce actually stayed in the tower and they had lots of great live events, including our live podcast in which I, I mean, there are really no celebrities, I think, in the James Joyce space, but this is about as close as you get. I got to interview Uh, Vivian veal Igo and Robert Nicholson um, about their new book, Tales from the Tower, which talks about their experience as the very early, uh, in Vivian's case, curator of the Joyce Tower, and in Robert's case, a multi-decade curator of the Tower Museum, which if you've ever been to Dublin, I'm sure you've visited and been charmed by. And these two really... Uh, made it the institution that it is now. Um, I also talked to uh, Brandon O'Brien, who is the editor from uh, Mortello Publishing of this fine book, again called Tales from the Tower. And they're all just very, I mean, really unassuming in a, a, a way. Uh, and so knowledgeable and um, really, really important figures in um, Joyce studies. And I think when you hear Joyce studies, you tend to think of professors and scholars. But um, I- I'm both uh, – when when I talked to them prior to the interview, they, they really um, – one, one thing that I – one theme that kind of arose was the importance of – the people who aren't professors in preserving Joyce's legacy in Dublin. And um, I think they are absolute paragons of that type of person. Um, And uh, their book, which will be available from November the 1st, also again called Tales from the Tower, available at all fine purveyors of books online and in person, um, tells that story and it's a really valuable document of their experience and how far interest just flat not even studies interest of Joyce has come in Ireland since the 60s when Vivian first mm. was sitting with her flask of coffee in a dank Mortello tower and mm. on the edge of the world so um with nothing there with nothing yeah no nothing except the the damp running down the walls mm. so um
1: and the floorboards rotting away
0: yeah now I I do want to oh, I I think I'll I'll tell one story. Um, which is uh, like I said, I, I talked to them a bit before we did the interview. Like not just like in the hallway outside, but like we we had a, a Zoom meeting, and I was trying to explain like you know our podcast's pretty friendly, conversational. You know you can have fun, you can be funny if you want to. Like more of a book club than a lecture, and we kind of talked about different topics at the end. I said, I said, do you have any questions? And Vivian veal Igo, someone that I have really admired for a long time, looks at me via Zoom, just complete deadpan face and saying, so you want us to be funny? And I was like, oh, God, they probably just think I'm so unserious. <laughs> and she is, as you'll see when you listen, or as you hear when you listen, um, she's easily the funniest one there. Yeah, naturally funny. Um, but
1: not like chortle funny, but just very deadpan dry natural
0: no um no so there i i was very very privileged to be asked to do this so um i do want to acknowledge that and a a massive thank you to alice ryan who is the current curator of the tower our interview with her is on patreon it's well worth your time to check out she's a really fascinating person and of course uh i would say friend of the show andrew baskwell who um has you know, sorry, Andrew. I can't remember your your top title off the top of my head, but Andrew is a, a a mover and shaker at the tower, and just a massive supporter of us, and you know, genuine friend to us. So, um, thank you so much. Uh, I know both you guys are pulling for us. So, um, anything you want to add, Dermot? Yeah, we've blathered long enough. I think. Okay. Well, um, Dermot will put some kind of musical sting in here, and then uh, you get to enjoy the. Uh, the, the the talk oh I would say there is also a video of this on our YouTube that we previously mentioned so if you want to see me and you know what everybody looks like uh, I would check that out um, and again Tales from the Tower available November 1st check it out you won't you, you will definitely enjoy it I was going to say you won't regret it no I'm going to say you will enjoy it it's a more will. positive call to action you will enjoy <laughs> Okay, uh, we'll see you in two weeks. All right,
1: see you then. Bye.
0: Bye. Okay. Welcome to episode 121 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses. My name is Kelly. And I'm Dermot. How are you today, Dermot? Very good. Great. Well, we have a real barnstormer of a podcast here today, but before we get into that, some business. First of all, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. We are a blog as well as a podcast, and we have a new blog post up entitled Raw Head and Bloody Bones in the Barton. Can you tell us a little bit about that blog post, Armit? Yes, it's the episode
1: where Bloom walks into the immoral pub. Yeah, the immoral. But, and by immoral, <laughs> I, t- I just think he means working class men. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the he doesn't like all the like like both of us. He's very sensitive to yes. what's the word misophonia. misophonia. Yeah, and uh, some leaders out they will already be flinching.
2: Mm-hmm. If you
3: don't like, yes no, no. Don't,
0: okay, I people, don't like that. People who don't. <laughs> See, you see? <laughs> okay, so tor- so we're already torturing our listeners. So, yeah, and I think Dermot's hot take about, you know, kind of the, the working class symbolism of that scene um, is something I get into in a, maybe a more uh, critical way than a hot take kind of way. But um, Dermot has done some artwork, and I'd like him to describe the artwork.
1: Yeah, I drew uh, because there's a reference to Rawhead, uh, Rawhead Rex. No,
0: Rawhead and Bloody Rawhead Bones. Rawhead and
1: Bloody Bones, also known as I think Rawhead Rex. Oh, okay. And would you uh, care to explain what that is? Okay, so my father—I've mentioned this before. My grandmother used to terrify my dad when he was a kid with tales of Rawhead and Bloody Bones, and it because con- it just conjures up this wonderful image. I and my dad would chase us around the house. We had a very small house in Arkansas, and he would chase us around as Rawhead and Bloody Bones, doing this amazing like like hand over his head kind of move and you'd, you'd imagine the flaps of skin falling off him you know uh terrify us so anyway that was uh, our my childhood experience of rawhead and bloody bones and then you find out i found out a couple of things there is a very bad 1980s horror movie called rawhead rex mm-hmm. shot in county wicklow and but it's also apparently an old english fairly well-known english folk horror Mm-hmm. that mothers used to terrify their children with because mm-hmm. they said, if you don't behave, raw head and bloody bones will get you mm-hmm. and raw head and bloody bones hides under the stairs, crunching on the bones of naughty children
0: like Harry Potter. Yep.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> and, and the article was was very sad about the fact that a lot of these folk horrors have been mm-hmm. lost to time. So it's nice that this one because this one for me is a personal family connection. And mm-hmm. um, but also, I think my grandmother's surname, I'm not going to say it, but very, very English. Um, and she was very Irish. She was very Republican. She really hated the British Empire with a passion. But she had the most English possible surname. It was very strange. But that I, I wonder if she carried that story through the, her English grandparents or great grandparents or whoever that came down to her. And so it, it may be more common in the pale, like on the east coast of the country. But it's, I've read that it's more common in County Wicklow. Mm-hmm. That's some little folk horror. Um, but I love the fact that it's mentioned a couple of times, like twice. Neelis Joyce loved yeah. it. Yeah, yeah.
0: In this passage in Lestragonians and then also in uh, *Cersei*. Stephen refers to the ghoulish specter of his mother as raw, right. raw head and bloody bones, chewer of corpses, all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you you put a lot of that family history and that into your image that you did for it. Or? Yes.
1: Yeah. So it's a big green raw head <laughs> monster, and I could have made him his head a bit more raw, but it's fairly raw. And he's chomping mm-hmm. on a big broth of, of, um. I should have put bones in there. No, he has a bone. He has he's, a bone in his yeah. left hand. So it should be blood on the bone. But anyway, um, yeah, no, it's pretty ghastly. And then poor Bloom is silhouetted in the doorway going, oh, God, no, I'm getting out of here. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Okay. So if anybody would like to see your artwork or if they'd like to read the blog post, what should they do? Go to bloomsandbarnacles.com all right um and i would also say check out our um socials because i post a lot of Dermot's artwork especially on our instagram i think if you want to find us that's the best place to go right now because that seems to be where people are seeing our work mm. um also if you are interested in following us on blue sky as a twitter alternative i have codes just send me an email blooms and barnacles at gmail.com and uh, mm. but you have to promise to follow me and and uh, write a gushing comment <laughs> <laughs> under every post um we're also on youtube i don't plug our youtube channel enough but yeah. you can see dermot's artwork in most of these places so yeah just go to youtube um, type in blooms and barnacles and you'll find yeah us. yeah yeah um all the big you know socials you find us there mm. um we have a few shout outs then um first of all thank you if you've donated to us in the the last cycle uh thank you so much to all of our patrons over at patreon uh patreon.com slash barnacle if you'd like to support us monetarily you can do that or drop a one-time donation on paypal thank you to the folks who've done that recently as well um you can find links for all that on our website bloomsabarnacles.com in the upper right hand corner and if you are already a patron um our October Patreon bonus episode is maybe one of my favorite episodes we've ever done where I talk to a scholar named Ryan Kerr uh, about his article about um, black, pa- fi- uh, blackface performers and minstrel shows as they show up in Ulysses. I-, I provocatively entitled it. Why aren't there any black characters in Ulysses? But we do genuinely answer that question in the course of the episode. Um, so I, encourage you to check that out. Um, you can also follow us via our newsletter um, which there's a, a link to sign up for that at our website bloomsmarnacles.com and uh, of course if you'd like to support us in a non-monetary fashion rate and review us at your favorite uh, you know podcast repository or uh, you know honestly tell a friend like that that's that's the best um, you know drop us a comment send us an email. And speaking of emails, we got a great email from Max about our most one of our recent episodes. The one where we talked about H.G. Wells. Um, I believe that's the the grandeur that was Rome, and I think that'll be the episode just before this. Anyway, I'd like this is really a Dermot topic, which makes me excited too, because I like when there's some business for Dermot to take care of. Um, So Dermot's going to read Max's email and then uh, respond to it.
1: Yeah, I made some comment about Churchill gassing the Kurds. Which uh, There's an offhand remark in a recent episode about H.G. Wells and how he was a liberal. He wasn't a Tory like Churchill gassing the Kurds. It probably reinforces the points being made about H.G. Wells and British imperialism, a phenomenon supported across the political spectrum. At the time he was gassing the Kurds, he was a liberal in David Lloyd George's liberal government. He only switched back to the Tories in 1925, and I think he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, so probably not gassing anyone. Hopefully, so yeah, no, he was. Uh, he started as a Conservative, becomes a Liberal, and, and then this he is goes Winston Churchill. Winston, and then he goes back to the Conservatives again, mm-hmm. and there's an um, which is true, um, and yeah, you look at if you look if you use terms like as, as I prefer to do, which I know drives some people nuts, like in the actual way, like liberal, as in classical mm-hmm. liberal, and. Uh, conservative as in like Burkean conservative mm-hmm. then you get closer to the bone a little bit so um, yeah the liberals the British liberals and the British conservatives would have been very very similar in terms of how they related to the empire and a lot of books that I've read like some some people were against the empire in the empire but nevertheless it didn't stop it from growing and uh, even when they were in charge you know so you have some of the worst crimes against the Irish happening under liberal government so it's not like you can map presentist terms you can map modern day terms back onto mm. these people who would be very dangerous to do that um I'm trying to think where it's going with that but um yeah so anyway uh old churchill i, just, I would recommend for, i i i'd be the first to jump on churchill <laughs> but having said that there's a lot about his life that i enjoy i've read my early life which is a fun read mm-hmm. and uh, it's it was the basis for the movie young winston which is a great great movie to watch while understanding that he did all these horrible things, because none of that gets into the movie really, mm-hmm. um, yeah, um, oh, he's an interesting character. But yeah, from from Irish points of like Lloyd George as well, a liberal uh, did a lot of damage to this country um, by by really not understanding the people. Same with Balfour and all the other stuff that they mm-hmm. tripped, you know, tripped off Sykes-Picot and all the rest of it. So yeah, no, that's about that. I think. Can I was anything else I wanted to say about Old Winnie Pooh? <laughs>
0: oh, god, oh. <laughs> well that nickname is going to be the form my nightmare takes tonight
1: <laughs> oh god massive alcoholic okay. bottle of champagne for breakfast every day mm-hmm. yeah he wouldn't have survived the modern world not, not with his twitter feed be right. <laughs> i thought
0: you were going to say with the increasing price of champagne
1: i <laughs> <laughs> could well afford it Unlike Boris Johnson, half American, an American, one American parent, hmm. so, so he could have he could have in theory been president of America. Maybe.
0: Was Devalera American as he well? He was
1: half American, born okay. ac- halfway across the Atlantic, okay. and so he's yeah, truly Mid Atlantic. Yeah, Mid Atlantic, and that saved his life in 1916. The Brits didn't want to execute uh, uh, somebody who might be okay. seen as an American. So. All right. Yeah, there's a whole phenomenon of the. Um, the, the kind of uh, Epic type leaders Who come from outside mm-hmm. Right about that years ago It's fascinating mm-hmm. Like the outsider Who comes in um, mm-hmm. Like De Bing Wong, yeah. um, Lawrence of Arabia People like that who, like, who often get Like lumped in Now as white saviors But it's The other way of looking at it Is they're outsiders Who mm-hmm. come in and because they're such an outsider, people look at them, like, from a weird angle. Mm-hmm. And so they can do things that, like, locals mm. might not be able to do. This is
0: inspiring me right now. Yeah, it's sure, uh, Look sure. for my presidential <laughs> candidacy in of Ireland in 2045. Vote for me, guys. Mm, yeah. <laughs> vote early, vote often, as mm. they say in Chicago. All right. Anything else to say about Winston uh, Churchill? I don't think so. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about this episode. Uh, there's... Not a whole lot to say. I mean, we say it in the episode. Um, so this is the the audio recording of our September live show that was part of the Joyce Knights Festival at the James Joyce Tower and Museum in Sandy Cove, south of Dublin. You'll know it as the Martello Tower that is the first page of Ulysses, um... And uh, so they had a little festival out there last month um, to mark the nights that Joyce actually stayed in the tower. And they had lots of great live events, including our live podcast, in which I... I mean, there are really no celebrities, I think, in the James Joyce space, but this is about as close as you get. I got to interview... Uh, Vivian Veal Igo and Robert Nicholson um, about their new book *Tales from the Tower*, which talks about their experience as v- the very early, uh, in Vivian's case, curator of the Joyce Tower, and in Robert's case, a very multi-decade um, curator of the Tower Museum. Which, if you've ever been to Dublin, I'm sure you've visited and been charmed by. And these two really uh, made it the institution that it is now um i also talked to uh brandon o'brien who is the editor from uh mortello publishing of this fine book again called tales from the tower and they're all just very i mean really unassuming in a, a a way uh, and so knowledgeable and um, really really important figures in um, Joyce studies and I think when you hear Joyce studies you tend to think of professors and scholars but um, I- I'm both uh, when when I talked to them prior to the interview they, they really um, one, one thing that I one theme that kind of arose was the importance of the people who aren't professors in preserving Joyce's legacy in Dublin. And um, I think they are absolute paragons of that type of person. Um, And uh, their book, which will be available from November the 1st, also again called Tales from the Tower, available at all fine purveyors of books online and in person, um, tells that story and it's a really valuable document of their experience and how far interest just flat not even studies, interest of Joyce has come in Ireland since the sixties when Vivian first mm. was sitting with her flask of coffee in a dank Martello Tower and mm. on the edge of the world. So um with nothing there. With nothing, yeah. No nothing except the the damp running down the walls. Mm. So um
1: and the floorboards rotting away.
0: Yeah. Now, I, I do want to, oh, I, I think I'll I'll tell one story, um, which is, uh, like I said, I, I talked to them a bit before we did the interview, like, not just like in the hallway outside, but like we we had a, a Zoom meeting and I was trying to explain like, you know, our podcast pretty friendly, conversational, you know, you can have fun, you can be funny if you want to, like more of a book club than a lecture. And we kind of talked about different topics at the end. I said, "I said, do you have any questions?" And Vivian veal Igo, someone that I have really admired for a long time, looks at me via Zoom, just complete deadpan face, and saying, "So you want us to be funny?" And I was like, "Oh God, they probably think I'm so unserious." And she is, as you'll see when you listen, or as you hear when you listen, um, she's easily the funniest one there. Yeah, naturally funny, um,
1: but not like chortle funny, but just very deadpan dry natural
0: no um no so there i i was very very privileged to be asked to do this so um i do want to acknowledge that and a a massive thank you to alice ryan who is the current curator of the tower our interview with her is on patreon it's well worth your time to check out she's a really fascinating person and of course uh i would say friend of the show andrew baskwell who um has you know, sorry, Andrew, I can't remember your your job title off the top of my head, but Andrew is a, a mover and shaker at the tower and just a massive supporter of us and, you know, genuine friend to us. So, um, thank you so much. Uh, I know both you guys are pulling for us. So, um,. Anything you want to add, Dermot? Yeah, we've blathered long enough, I think. Okay. Well, um, Dermot will put some kind of musical sting in here, and then uh, you get to enjoy the the talk. Oh, I would say there is also a video of this on our YouTube that we previously mentioned. So if you want to see me and, you know, what everybody looks like, uh, I would check that out. Um, and again, Tales from the Tower, available November 1st. Check it out. You won't. You, you will definitely enjoy it. I was going to say you won't regret it. No, but I'm going to say you will enjoy it. It's a more will. positive call to action.
1: You will enjoy.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, we'll see you in two weeks. All right, see you then. Bye. Bye. All right, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about all things related to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Kelly, your host. And I am over the moon to be here with these fantastic guests tonight to talk about the very building in which we are seated. Um, And so I'll go from left to right. I am very excited to welcome Robert Nicholson, uh, former curator of the James Joyce Tower Museum. Uh, Vivian veal Igo, another former curator of the James Rice Tower Museum, and together they are authors of a new book that's coming out next month called Tales from the Tower about all of their experiences, and next to me is Rondon O'Brien, Not bad. <laughs> yes. uh, who, you are the editor of that fine book. Um, I the book will be available in October of 2023. I got to read it in order to talk to these wonderful people. And let me tell you, it is a, a brief but fantastic uh, catalog of memories about this wonderful singular building. Um, I can only see it being a, um, the go-to resource for historians and joy scenes alike going forward. Uh, there's nothing else like it. Uh, Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. All right. Um, So um, I've I've kind of gathered some different questions and things that people might want to know about your experience and about the tower. And I was wondering if we could start off by asking some very um, specific and wonky questions about the tower on June 16, 1904, in the fictional version of Dublin that was in Ulysses. so, um, as, as, as you all know, you, you have the first line on your t-shirt, mm-hmm. gentlemen, the first row. So, you know, the Ulysses opens, um, with Stephen Dedalus, Buck Mulligan, and the English student Haynes staying here in the tower. And Stephen is very annoyed because Haynes has been having dreams of a Black Panther. And one question I've gotten a couple of times is... What is the the truth, is there any truth to that story about Haynes's, well he would have been Dermot Chenevix trench in real life, are there, is there any truth to those to that story or is it completely made up by Oliver St. John the the real-life model for Buck Mulligan um, or is it somewhere in between?
4: Possibly somewhere in between because Joyce mentioned it first in, in 1922 and Gogarty then gave us a much fuller account. Mm-hmm. And Gogarty, as we know, was great at spinning yarns. So I don't know that there may be some germ of truth in there, which has been happily embellished by Gogarty.
0: Okay, I cause I know one question. I think there's a version of the story where a pistol was fired in yeah. the tower. Um, do you think there's truth to the pistol?
3: Um, if not a pistol, maybe a revolver. Okay. A, a, a young student came here the other week. He was um, a volunteer here as well. Um, and he asked a very kind of awkward but perspicacious question. He looked at me and said, Show me the bullet holes.
4: I've been asked that many times. I've been asked <laughs> that too. To and I be said, fair. Go and find bullet holes in granite. Okay. <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> All right. So you wouldn't find bullet holes in granite. You can <laughs> yeah, take what, that to the bank. Banging and pinging. Well, it also,
5: um, I heard that maybe the same revolver that Trench had was the revolver he used a few years later to shoot
0: himself. okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He did come to a very young and tragic end. He did. Okay. All right. So that, thank you. Uh, Another one, I don't know if there's an answer to this question, but um, I, I got a question over Instagram asking so if why did Stephen not pay the milk woman for her milk because later on he gives some money to Mulligan why didn't he give it to the milk woman
5: he didn't like wasting his money I suppose mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> 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 All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, maybe Mulligan was officially
4: the one who was paying the rent okay. there's a lot of doubt about that okay. and maybe he was the one she listened to so
0: Okay, so no justice for the milkwoman in *Ulysses*. She she has to wait till next time to get get some get some of her uh, debt paid. I
4: think that is probably the modus operandi* of half the people in *Ulysses*. Yes, that
0: is fair. I think it's in the next episode where Stephen remembers his own list of debts that have gone unpaid. Okay, great. Well, all right. We've got now all of our our wonky literary questions out of the way. So I want to talk about. Your experience here as curators um, so uh, Vivian you were the first curator and remind me of what year did you begin um, as curator of the tower?
5: 1965
0: started yeah. 1965 but the museum actually had opened
5: in 1962 mm-hmm. and it fell into financial difficulties and was taken over by the tourist board. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I started.
0: Okay. And, um, you know, we have these wonderful commodious facilities here now. We, certainly it was like that in the mid-60s as well. Lots of, you know, um, nice climate controlled rooms and, uh, you know, indoor plumbing. It was completely different. There's no plumbing whatsoever.
5: The only water was the water running down the walls. <laughs> <laughs> There's nowhere to make tea or wash your hands. There's no loo. So you had to be house-trained. Okay. <laughs> right. A bit more spartan. No, it was fix. very spartan. And I had to climb up the big iron stairway. And sometimes nobody called in. And the wind used to be howling around the place. Mm. And there was this... There was rumors going around that there was a strange character in the area and there's no telephone, so you couldn't phone anybody. I had no typewriter. I had nothing. Okay. Mm. But I stuck it out. <laughs> 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 okay.
0: um, so um, I'm sure as part of um, curating a museum like this, you met a lot of interesting and um, important people over the years, people that Joyce would have known. Uh, Are there any that really stand out in your mind as uh, notable people that you were able to meet uh, through the Joyce Tower?
5: Well, there are a lot of notable people, a lot of poets, writers. Um, For example, I met John Berryman, the American poet, Mm -hmm. and he came in with a photographer from London. And I was sitting at the desk and he said, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading a poem by Rivers Carew. So he took up the book and he went into the middle of the room and he started reading the poem. At the same time, the Dublin Literary Tour coming in the door and they all stood around and watched John Berryman read the poem. They thought it was kind of part of the show. (laughs) And he felt he was doing so well when he finished reading the poem. He took up another book from my desk and he read out some of Yeats. And he got a standing ovation. So oh, they all thought he was part of the show. So <laughs> <a very laughs> fantastic. He was just one of the people, now, I'm sure. Well, oh, you and know, a
4: star-studded existence here. And, you know, who would turn up? I
0: remember seeing names like Bono and Salman Rushdie in the, when I read the book. Yes, well, um, but those are not even the most interesting ones, <laughs> I, I think.
4: I <laughs> told <up> to <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Bono's
0: all well and good, but you got to meet Richard Elman, who is someone I've, whose work I really admired, just working on my podcast. Yes, well, well, we
4: both did, I'm sure. Yeah, we yes. Richard Elman. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes, well, he was, he was quite a charmer already. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was over in Dublin doing a lecture, and So I went to see him and said, you will come out to the tower, won't you? So he came out and we had a good chat. And he sent me a few more photocopies of letters, which Mm -hmm. I thought would be useful to have here. So we kept up a bit of a correspondence. And when he was writing the, the second edition of his book, I was able to supply him with some interesting tips. I'd met a lady whom Joyce had persuaded out of having an abortion.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Is, is that a story you're willing to go into more? Or? Um, well, <laughs> you don't she, have to.
4: <laughs> oh, but somebody had pointed me in her direction. She was a niece of Paul Leon and mm-hmm. she was an actress. Mm-hmm. And she's doing very well in London and she just landed a great part. I think it was as you like it. Mm-hmm. And there's one small problem, which is obviously going to get bigger That she'd... Um, right become pregnant and so she decided the best place to go was Paris and get it sorted out so she went off to Paris and when she was there she met her uncle and um, he and Joyce took her out for the night and um, I think she had to carry them home at the end of it but they persuaded her to have the child and they went on to become a prominent architect
5: All right, yeah you met all sorts of people with all sorts of problems and you had to listen to them then a nun used to come in to see me and she was wondering should she stay in the convent or not. And she asked me, "Should she leave?" <laughs> what, did you, what did you tell her?
0: Based <laughs> on So you, you almost have like the the job of a like a like a bartender or therapist. Oh my gosh, I, w- I would not have expected that. No, you get people with all sorts problems. Okay. And so one thing I want to ask you, your story kind of alluded to. You, you you were able to meet people who had known Joyce. Oh yes, um, a lot of them. Yeah, like C.P. Kern, met Potter, Column, Arthur
5: Parr, Paul Rogiera, a whole lot of them. Mm-hmm. I met them all. Okay, mm-hmm. and of course, James Joyce's sister, Mae, Mom, met hers. So. Okay. All
0: right. Do you, Do you remember any any stories about um, uh, people who knew Joyce, or so you know a story I've never heard before, Robert, um, you've told already. Um, but were there any other things you learned about Joyce's life um, through these you know, friends and family of his? Well, I knew
5: his um, niece, Bosena Della Mata, who was very exotic and quite a colourful character. And she used to come in and she used to tell me about when she met Lucia Joyce and Lucia Joyce stayed with her and she told me a lot about Lucia Joyce and she used to talk about Lucia Joyce and Uncle Jim Mm -hmm. quite a lot and I was fortunate enough to get a a trip
4: to Paris to go and see some of the ones who still left in 1980 and so I had um, Samuel Beckett for instance who was very kind and friendly and this was among the things he told me were just the the little details about Joyce Um, there was that book by which um, Lucia had done the Chaucer ABC, where she had <laughs> done all the illuminated letters. And he remembered Joyce going over it, with, and he was trying to remember the word. He said, not his telescope, his, his loop, That's oh, magnifying glass. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and he was looking at these letters and saying, I see no sign of mental illness in these designs. He's mm. obviously clutching at straws there. Yeah. Yeah. And he told me about the last time he'd seen Joyce and how um, they'd met down in Vichy in the, the safe area. And then he'd finally looked in the door and um, he was leaving and he walked down the road and he was turning back to wave goodbye at Joyce and Nora. And he just he said, I never thought it would be the last time I'd see him.
5: And then I met um, James Farrell from Chicago, he wrote the Studs Lonigan trilogy. Mm-hmm. He's a very famous American yeah. writer. And he was one of child of a family of 16. And he was born in 1904. So he, was a, he came over uh, to see Benedict Kylie and they both came out and um, James, um, I took him all around Dublin. And when he came up to the tower, he always brought his portable typewriter. I don't know why he carried around with him all the time, but he did. But one time he was coming out the stairs, the top of the stairs, and um, I was just in front of him, and he tripped. Mm-hmm. So he came tumbling down, but I caught him. So he said I saved his life. <laughs> 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 you
3: saved his typewriter. Oh, and the
5: typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> but he, we became great friends, and he invited me over to New York, and he said I could stay for as long as I liked. all right somebody else who was born in
4: 1904 actually um, I also met in Paris was Nino Frank who was Joyce's translator and he told me the story of the Dejeuner Ulysse which was a big photograph off there and I think it's widely known that um, Samuel Beckett was um, left behind on the, the way home because he and kept trying to go into bars for more drinks and okay. eventually said he wanted to go to the toilet so they just dumped him by the side of the road. <laughs> um, There's actually more to the story than that. Um, you know, Frank told me that while they were all sitting around listening to long and boring speeches from the, the, the French literary lions, um, they looked at the door of the restaurant, big window, and outside was a children's playground. And there swings and seesaws and so himself and beckett and i think thomas mcgreevy as well slipped out and started playing the swings and seesaws (laughs) while the speeches are going on and the next thing they realized was that um, joyce had spotted them he slipped out and joined them as well (laughs) so he was on one of the seesaw and nino frank on the other (laughs) everybody else in the the party was furious (laughs) they they bundled them all on the bus to go home and then again it might have been McGreevy's idea to um, sort of say, oh we we need a a facility stop, Mm. there's a handy pub here, so the three of them slipped out for a drink and then again Joyce joined them Mm. and the, the people in the bus were getting very agitated, they managed to pull off this trick a couple of times and then eventually at the moment came when Beckett said, uh, folks, uh, actually, I really need to go to the toilet <laughs> now. So with one voice, they all said, no. <laughs> it peed and suddenly it was just dumped by the side of the road, left a it back to Paris. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> all right, fantastic <laughs> stories. Thank you. Um, a, a big part of being a curator, of course, is expanding the collection. Mm. Um, Do you have any particularly favourite or memorable items that came into the collection uh, during your tenure?
5: Well, when I first came, there's only um, five showcases. They're quite small and they're all full. So um, there were a few interesting things like um, the waistcoat, which is inside. Yes. And it was Joyce's fault. Samuel Beckett gave it Mm -hmm. to the tour. And then a lot of writers used to come in, they used to get their books when I asked them, you know, and I kind of held a gun to their head. Trenches <laughs> <laughs> <is> go <gone. laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then Fritz he's a very well-known international Joyceian who's based in Zurich. He was a friend of Joyce's, intimate friend in Zurich, Paul Ruggiero. And he told Ruggiero about the lack of material in the tower. So um, Paul Ruggiero, Fritz invited me over to Zurich and I went over and I met Paul Ruggiero who was a very generous man and he gave a very valuable collection including Joyce's guitar and the first edition of Dubliners which was signed which Joyce signed and gave to Paul Ruggiero and his wife Bertha for a wedding present and he gave a number of postcards and letters and Joyce's cigar cases and other things like that that was really the start of the collection and mm-hmm. it was very valuable. And he could have sold that collection for a huge amount of money, but he didn't. He gave it to the tower.
1: Excellent. Fantastic.
5: Yeah. Very generous.
4: And yeah, so well, <clears throat> the, the thing I felt was the the real gap when I arrived it was the first edition of Ulysses, which is, you know, the, the reason why we're here. Mm-hmm. And so just very fortunately there was a a man who said he had a copy for sale and was prepared to offer it for what? Um, well, I won't give the figure, but um, by present-day terms, it was um, extremely generous, and so we managed to get a sponsor to to pay for it. Actually, it was um, Carols, the tobacco mm-hmm. company, provided the sponsorship. So I'm it it's. Got a slightly smoky past. Though <laughs> actually I was talking to the, the man who sold it to us and I think he um, managed to fund buying it in the first place by selling weeds. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> interesting. A I think it's actually, reportedly it's the one which Janus um, Rose, the Joyce Scholar, used mm-hmm. um, when he was working on the team for the corrected text of Ulysses as a kind of um, reference, uh, a first edition to work from so that it's um, performed its function in Joyce scholarship yeah.
0: uh, do we want to talk about the saga of the death mask or should we save that for the when they read your book um,
4: maybe to <laughs> when we read the book okay so you, yes.
0: the Joyce's death masks have a very interesting history but you got to read the book we don't, want, we don't want to give everything
3: away. Just in passing on that, though, without commentary, because obviously was a highlight of the book and a, and a, a very significant part of the, the whole history of, of the curators, but it, it seems to me to, to cast the curators almost in what I began to think of them as, as editors, almost like guard. they were guardians of the Tower, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like they were prepared to fight mm-hmm. to hold on to what they thought and knew was best for the Tower, and really go against the prevailing feeling of, um, you know, power and men with money, mm-hmm. and stuck out, stuck out, and we owe the mysterious serious debt for, if you like, so doing, stuff could have vanished. Yes,
0: uh, yes absolutely. And one thing I took away from reading the book is how a lot of the curator's job is just cataloging things, yeah. how things come into Much the museum, more. and they don't, you know, they don't necessarily get cataloged right away. and you have a lot of stuff and you have to find out where, you know, where it fits. And it just seems like a huge job.
5: It's more than cataloging books, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You no know, okay. much more. Yeah. So sometimes yes. if you met somebody and they were really very interested in finding out about Joyce's Dublin, maybe after work, you'd take them around Dublin. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't really part of your job, but mm-hmm. you kind of enjoyed it and they enjoyed it. and yes. They made great friends. Mm-hmm. And one mm-hmm. time I was in the tower and this American bought two copies of Ulysses he came over and he said, "I want you to sign these." And I said, "I didn't write the book."
3: <laughs> <laughs> Never <Now> you cherish. <care. laughs> uh, he said, "I want you to
0: sign it, nevertheless." <laughs> <laughs> um, how how do you um, how did you as a curator um, balance the the needs of you know the tourism industry you know which is how money can come into the tower um, with the needs of um, being a scholar, a curator um, or even a guardian of the tower, if you accept that description.
4: I suppose we, we both had that to put up with, mm-hmm. I mean the really the fact is no museum um, survives on, the, you know, on being solely commercial, mm-hmm. um, if it did it's probably prostituting itself in some way
0: okay.
4: and <clears throat> So we were fortunate, I suppose, that we had a company who looked after us. Mm-hmm. But they were a tourism organisation and the priority would be tourism and making money. And sometimes, I think, most of the time they were quite understanding of the fact that the museum also had to be run responsibly. That I had to spend a lot of time doing
5: cataloguing and research and things like that. But but that was easy enough, because initially the tower was only open, say, from May until the end of October, so you had the winter months to do your research. Oh, well, that was yeah. fine until I got a second job. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. And
4: when they opened up the Dublin Writers' Museum, may mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it rest in peace, <coughs> <coughs> mm-hmm. I, was, I found that once the tower closed in the summer, I was sent back to the Writers' Museum and had to work there, so it kind of cut out the time for dedicated winter
0: projects. Okay. Um, and I, I remember too from your sections, Vivian, you said in the, certainly in the 1960s, in the early days of this museum, that most of your visitors came from overseas and it took a while to kind of uh, cultivate an interest in the tower in Ireland itself, which I found very surprising. Took decades. Mm-hmm.
5: No, initially it was just Americans and Europeans, very few Irish. Even on Bloomsday, very few Irish came. One man, um, Professor Mo- Roger McHugh from U- University College, he came every Bloomsday without fail. But other times on Bloomsday, nobody would be coming, only Americans. And, you know, it was very quiet. Um, the Irish sort of looked upon Joyce with suspicion and they thought he was anti-Irish and anti-Catholic. So they just weren't too interested
4: in Joyce. I I think that began to change really around um, probably 1977, the Mm. Joyce Symposium then. And of course, David Norris, who was so prominent about saying, you know, Mm. Joyce is fun and reading him well. And then what really made the difference was the centenary in 1982 because so much was laid on that was that appealed to the local public and it's i think it just in, brought up this idea of bloomsday as essential well, sort of an alternative to christmas <laughs> <laughs> and so much you could do. After,
5: um, when the ulysses film came out around 1966 67 uh, there were very stirs and derogatory letters to the editor of the papers about the film and about joyce mm-hmm even about the Cannes Film Festival, mm-hmm. saying people over there thought, you know, the film was a bit...
0: I know that the story with the film at Cannes resulted in a man being pushed down the stairs. It was quite dramatic. Uh, we did an episode about that on our podcast, so you have to listen to that. But, um, yeah, no, it was really surprising to me um, that the, you know, I, I kind of knew it took a while for Joyce to gain popularity within, in Ireland, but it, it was uh, surprising to me that it, it uh, took that long. Um,
4: yes, I think when I started, people um, the idea that Ulysses was something dirty was beginning to wane. Mm-hmm. Um, they still thought it was something that was just for the Americans, mm-hmm. and the you know you could show very few actual. Joycean scholars in Ireland
2: mm-hmm.
4: at the time, Vivian um, being one of them, of course, McHugh, Roger the
5: and David Norris, of course. But you could still count them on the fingers of two hands. Right. But when I was working here in 1965, I closed up the museum one day and I was going home down my forty foot, and I met somebody from UCD. She was. Head librarian, UCD. And I studied librarianship, and she met me, and I was delighted to tell her about my new job up in the tower. And she, she looked at me between the two eyes, and she said, "Miss Vee, she said, "you are working in the sewage museum. You should be absolutely ashamed of yourself." This
3: a comment
0: on the plumbing, obviously. Yes, if only. <laughs> Yeah, it's just I. Um, it's hard, like having gone to the the Bloomsday celebrations the last couple of years mm. since I've lived in Ireland. It's it's hard to like I understand it intellectually, but it's hard to square how much has changed. And obviously, it's changed completely. Yeah, you guys have played such a big role in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, coming here as an American, being able to come to the the tower that's in the book is amazing and. Uh, Yes,
4: I don't know, sometimes I feel a bit like Dr. Frankenstein. Okay. I'm um, just encouraging Bloomsday in the first place, and it's become such a monster now.
0: Oh, that, that's quite a controversial <coughs> yes. statement. Do you want to speak to that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to ask you a bit about Bloomsday, Sophie.
4: Yes, well, I suppose I watched it grow from, mm-hmm. um, I mean, in the beginning, it was probably much more esoteric. And, okay. Um, a few people who really knew what was what would sort mm-hmm. of, do quotations to each other Mm -hmm. and go and meet in the right places. And of course, there was the the famous 1954 Bloomsday Mm -hmm. when they went out in the horse cabs. And I think um, it kind of set a template for all Bloomsdays Mm -hmm. to follow. Mm -hmm. It involved a journey which never quite succeeded and going to various (coughs) places Joyce might have known and stopping at a a great number of pubs. so and then eventually the shipwreck of the Odyssey. Right. <laughs> but, uh, I think that yeah. gives people something to follow. But there was, no, the, that was 1982, as I said before, just kicked it off rather. That. Um, RTE did the entire broadcast of Ulysses, which lasted 30 hours, and they mm-hmm. put up speakers in various public places so people couldn't miss it. And so I think a lot of people just realised. The, yeah. the other thing that happened. On that day was the um, the staging called "O oh Rocks." It is they restaged the entire "Wandering Rocks" chapter of *Ulysses* Great. on location, according to a strict timetable, which I think Clive Hart had worked out. And so, no one person could see the whole performance. It is was every, everywhere. I had a very small part. I managed to get away from the tower long enough to be the Reverend Hugh C. Love being shown around the chapter house of St. Mary's Abbey by candlelight. Nice. and um, fortunately actually I, I claim credit for the suggestion you know trying to find out who would do the viceroy and I suggested that the Lord Mayor had the carriage and he could well be mm-hmm. persuaded so he did the procession through the middle
2: okay.
4: um, then the the, um, the the Ormond Hotel um, <laughs> very rashly announced they're going to be selling drink at 1904 prices for one hour on Wednesday. So of course everybody converged on that oh part of Dublin, including the the, the people who had been in the cast. And so they were all dressed up in Joycean costumes. And so I think people then got the idea it would be great fun to be roaming around the streets in Joyce costumes. So this kind of Gradually grew and grew. So
0: it was it was an organic thing then Bloomsday. it sort of it, it took on a life of its own It was never like planned out In its current no, form. No, nobody
4: sat down and said we shall make this a festival um, It made itself Board Fulcher didn't ask for a plan. Okay. Um, it just simply mushroomed and... mm-hmm.
5: Well in 1967 at the first symposium when Fritz Zen was here He said to me later Vivian I don't know. We we didn't know then what we were about to unleash. We never said a sure <laughs> word. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. I, I wonder if in two hundred years people will still do all the Bloomsday rituals, but not know why they do them. <laughs> like I, yeah. I think so. <laughs> Look at the church. Do 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 you do you folks partake in Bloomsday yourself, or do you stay home that day? <laughs> you can, you, can, uh, you know, yeah. you don't, you don't have to say anything self-indulgent. Well,
5: the weather's generally very nice, so you go out. Yeah, and partake. Mm-hmm. See, well, for so Does many it years, it's only one thing to do on, so on many days. On, you yeah. Know yeah. So? yeah, But a very interesting thing was um, up in the old church in Taney and Dundrum They got the tar- the bells from um, Harvard St George's Church, mm-hmm. and they actually play the bells up there on Bloomsday, so you can actually hear the bells that Bloom heard on Bloomsday. Mm.
3: But but you asked like will people kind of remember what they're doing, Mm -hmm. hard to say but like last Bloomsday I was upstairs at 8 o'clock in the morning and people were starting to read and Mm -hmm. and a man read a bit in English and a man read a bit in Irish Mm -hmm. and a lady read a bit in Polish Mm -hmm. and they all believed. (laughs)
0: I I found when I was here I was at the tower on the centenary in 2022 and it did have a mass-like quality to it I I couldn't say exactly why obviously a lot of differences but there was sort of and I think in 2022 especially a lot of people came from out of town who would normally be here but there was a sort of an odd hush that fell over the crowd when the first reading began at 8am sharp on the 16th
4: yes i know when we were um, reconstructing the round room as to how it originally looked and i made a very special point of putting the table right in the center of the room the, the church would have put it
0: okay all right um i'm trying to think how i want to ask this question so i think um you know when prior to ulysses being in the, the public domain uh Did you ever have any problems with copyright doing these sort of recreations of Ulysses or, um, in various forms?
4: Um, I think a lot of other people did. Um, we, I think, got away with it. Mm -hmm. Um, we, Barry McGovern had been, um, started, started doing readings from Ulysses on Bloomsday here. And we, so every year he'd come and do yet another chapter on top of the tower and so he took the view that as i think i land in the legal loophole mm-hmm. that it was in fact a performance which had started mm-hmm. while copyright had been suspended mm-hmm. and that therefore it was allowed to be completed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so we went on that way i know i had a chat with Stephen Joyce on one occasion.
0: He's watching you from the <laughs> photo <laughs> Be careful what yes. you say.
4: Yeah, I think he said, you will do what you always do at the Tower on <laughs> <and> the <laughs> I think it was understood.
0: Does, does was knowing him in person similar to the kind of prickly reputation that he has?
4: Um, well, yes. I mean, I, 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 suppose I thought about him a lot. I think. Um, <coughs> I think you have to understand his situation. Mm -hmm. Um, He told me that the first time he met me, that um, all his family papers had been snapped up and sold into slavery in the United States and that everybody else was talking about his grandfather and putting up the picture of him. He was being deprived of possession of his family. Mm -hmm. And I think the only thing he could do as head of the state was try and reclaim it. Mm in ways which i mean he, he didn't like biographers mm-hmm. okay he never felt they got his grandfather right
2: mm-hmm. okay That's
4: so it was a just a hard case and i was i suppose i was always sorry i couldn't please him but mm-hmm. tried hard i think a lot of people do it's like walking a tightrope
0: Right.
4: Yeah. Once you fall off, you can't get up again. <laughs> <laughs>
5: but the James Joyce Institute, we went to Paris, um, I think, 1988 like or sometime, and Stephen Joyce, you know, met us there and he treated us very well. He was very hospitable. Oh well, yeah, he was generous, was like his definitely. like his grandfather.
4: Yeah. He had the style. Oh, right. But yes, I can see he did sort of hang a bit like a cloud over mm-hmm. the. Mm. street. I know, had difficulty. I to. Publish another edition of my book just like shortly before copyright ran out, and um, the estate kind of destroyed that by mm-hmm. um, charging a fee so enormous that they, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have been able to sell the books. So. Would that
0: be a Ulysses Guide? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic book, should be in everyone's collection. If you don't mind me tooting your horn a little bit. <laughs> mind
4: somebody else blowing that
0: um, all right. Uh, let me see how we're doing on time. Um, I guess I want to return w- before we uh, start finishing up here. Is uh, um, to more practical matters of what were some of the the challenges in operating what was a certain, you know originally a military fortification as a museum, just the facilities challenges. Um, I, I know you mentioned the water running down the there walls. There's no
5: facility, so I was... Here. Okay. Yes. Um,
0: I guess I'm yeah. thinking of the tower as its own facility. It was just very damp. <laughs> just very down. You know, so damp. Difficult,
5: you know um, every winter I had to take out all the eggs. Was, you know, it was too damp to leave things here, mm-hmm. so every winter I had to pack everything up, and bring it away, and then bring it back again in May. So that was kind of a bit of a nuisance.
3: Mm. Mm. Was that almost one of the more tragic times of the Tower, where I think I remember you writing about a book, a visitor's book on a very special occasion, was put into safekeeping and never...
5: No, there were two visitor's books in 1962 when the Tower first opened, was opened by Sylvia Beach, and it had the signatures of everybody who came, like Sylvia Beach, and Maria Jolas, and Francis Steloff and Joyce's sisters, and everybody. And that was put in storage for the winter, and somebody dumped
2: them. Oh, oh. that was yes. a w-
5: terrible waste of no, An officious it. office keeper, I yeah. suppose. Yes, no, a busybody. Yes, I mean, they, they
0: probably didn't you know, believe in keeping it was old so files. valuable, yeah. information. Yeah, that's heartbreaking to hear. It was heartbreaking, really. Yes, I
4: think that's why I was very anxious before I moved out to make sure. That I registered as much as possible and kept all the, the files safe okay. because well, some of them are probably quite forgettable sort of tour bookings and so on there's uh, an awful lot in there letters from interesting people and um, inquiries and revelations and information which um, you know some
5: and then <coughs> when Michael Scott's house was for sale I did a big out big plan that we should buy that house move the museum in there and leave the tower empty and an American, George Linewell offered his collection, free of charge, <coughs> if that was undertaken. And we couldn't get the money to do it, so one of the best private collections of Joyce in the world was sold to the Southern Methodist University for a huge price, and we could have got it for nothing. So I suppose
4: what they did do, possibly as a result of that, was at least to build this extension or setting in. So the museum itself got more space, mm-hmm. um, even if it didn't actually get the line wall collection. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did give me room to start expanding the collection when I moved in. And in fact, we needed every inch we got.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I recall from your book, too, I think the, the floors in the tower itself had to be fully replaced at some point because of the incursion of, of damp. or
4: water or things like that yes in 1972 there's a very generous man called tom keating who um, engaged when, when there was announced that the tower was closed because it was and the environment wasn't good for it um, he engaged to um, repair it all at his own expense mm-hmm. so he came along and put in a damp course he said they actually drilled into the walls and it was like a huge reservoir that, the walls are just filled up with water. Oh out. my god. Gallons and gallons and more gallons yeah. jetted out mm-hmm. and oh my god. released it all. Because uh, as you can see, it, it relies entirely on pointing to keep oh. the water out. Yeah. And pointing itself isn't sufficient. Short of actually covering it in plastic or something, it's, it's, um, it's always going to leak. Okay. Um, And so in the course of that, I think he also decided that the the floor upstairs was Mm -hmm. unsafe. Mm -hmm. So that was replaced as well.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, we're we're very grateful for the condition it's in today. It's, uh, again, hard to imagine the past because this is such a nice space to be in nowadays, except for that. Windy staircase up there. I don't oh. like that <laughs> <laughs> But what can you do It's history? Well, with our remaining time, um, I have one more question for you. Um, so, you guys have a book coming out called Tales of the Tower, which again, two thumbs up for me. But would you like to just talk about your, your book a little bit? Um, what went into it? Um, a- anything that comes to mind?
5: Like people we met, for example. One day I was sitting up there and um, the student came in. He'd sidled out from Dublin on his bike and he came in and he came up the stairs. And when he paid a shilling, he plonked a door knocker on, on my desk and he said, This is the door knocker for number seven Eccles Street. So I said, He'd actually taken it off the door of the house being demolished, so he saved it. So I, I asked him, Would he give it to the museum? And he said, I'm want to take it home and show the folks back home, but I'll eventually give it back to you. And 47 years later, (laughs) 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 he came back at the James Joyce Institute, at the James Joyce Centre, presented it. 47 years Because they had the door
4: from 7 Eccles Street. Right. They so they yeah. the knocked on oh, knock the door. Back on oh the door.
5: <laughs> he said it was a bit like River Rond, you know. Go around. <laughs> <randomly>. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: Or Finnegan's Way. Or Odysseus making yeah. his final return home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It found it. Yeah. yeah. Um Did Did you want to talk at all about editing the book?
3: Um, to say it was kind of a labor of love is a bit of a, an understatement. I think kind of what grew out of it, um, like, for me, was this emergence of a third character, almost, and that's the physical property and that is the building itself. Um, and why did I think that? It's because of the, if you like, the affection and the determination and, and the professionalism that these two people on my left um, put into putting up with, the, with the, the shit that was going on, if you like, in, in, in terms of its, its logistical kind of situation whether it became for them or a kind of a, a, a living place. And I think it's got a huge um, realism in that. We call it Tales from the Tower. At one stage, I was tempted to call it curators because the book was attributed right. to, to our curators. And it had been the intention of, of Seamus and the people involved to, to celebrate the curatorship of, of, of Vivian and um, Vivian and Robert. But I think the publisher looked at it and thought there's about 222 curators in the entire world, so that's going to be a relatively limited sort of market. Um, We wisely didn't do that. Another one I thought was Living with James, which was kind of an interesting kind of feeling as well. But we came to Tales from the Tower, and if I was to change it, it would only be to change one word. And I think in retrospect, Tales by the Tower Mm -hmm. might actually be a more accurate or succinct kind of way. Because in the book, what comes through is we have, if you forgive me for saying it, a, a dead author. We have a static, if you like, book. But we do have a living tower. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where what the publication tells for the tower is kind of cementing, if I can use that mm-hmm. word, uh, that this is not a, a dead museum by any manner of means. And it's becoming as people more and more come in through the volunteers and the visitors. Uh, again, your question, two hundred years, my vote is that you will be here. Mm-hmm. And that's what I liked about doing the book.
0: Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much. Um, we've got a few minutes left here. Um, I'd love to do a little Q and A. So does anyone in the audience or also from the live stream have any questions they'd like to ask these folks? Hey, I just have a question for Vivian. Um, there, there's a, a lovely piece in the collection, which
5: is a fragment of Nelson's pillar. Um, I, I, I understand that you collected that. Okay, can you tell us a little bit of that the
0: background of that? I'm, I'm going to jump in here. Um, the audience is not mic'd, so I should make sure to repeat the question. So um, the question is for Vivian. Uh, there's a fragment of Nelson's, t- uh, Nelson's pillar in the other room there. Could you talk a little bit about that? No, when the pillar is blown up. <laughs> Um,
5: I decided I'd go in immediately and pick up a bit of the pillar because um, it's cited Nelson's pillar cited twelve times in Ulysses. I thought it'd be good um,
0: to have a piece of pillar in the tower as an exhibit. And there, in there, it remains. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. All right. Any anybody else? Uh, just a very quick
1: one. Um, was there anything in the downstairs part of the tower when you originally opened the museum, or even in the eighties before the extension was built?
0: So, was there anything in the tower um, when the museum first Lo- opened? opened? Well, not in
5: nineteen six. Not, not in nineteen sixty five. It was just a storeroom, and it was, it was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Until I put an, an art exhibition by an Italian, by an an Australian, Val mm-hmm. Harper. She did paintings of all the episodes from New days. so okay. I had an exhibition there, that was the only thing that was ever. It's just a storeroom, really. Yeah,
4: so when, when, it was, um, when the extension was built then, in 1979, when I moved in, it gave me another extra room to work with. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Yeah,
4: and you can yeah, you some half a room, in- anyway, they repartitioned it. Okay. But there was also a toilet put in at that stage. Oh, hey, okay. <laughs> <Lovely, laughs> lucky you! <local. laughs> <laughs> I spent hours in there. Okay. <laughs> save, save
2: that for the book. Uh,
0: anybody else or any questions from the the live stream, there, Dermot? I'm not seeing any on the live stream. They're just listening politely, I'm assuming.
3: Okay. Go for it. I am, um, yeah, and um, I'm just wondering, given the tower today, the state it's in looking back over your time in it, if
0: money wasn't an issue, what would you what would you like to see it be? be or what, what, would you, what would you like to see added to it or changed, if anything? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it's just to repeat the question, yeah, if, if money wasn't an issue, um, what would you like to see done or changed on the tower? Yeah.
4: money you was you always to... an
0: issue. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
5: we'll mm-hmm. yeah, we yes. want you to be honest. Yeah, we want you to be honest. I'd knock down the extension. And I'd have the tower as it was originally. Okay. And I'd buy the house, Michael Scott's house, yes. and I'd put everything in there, mm-hmm. all the exhibits, and I'd leave the tower as it was. And I'd put back the old staircase. Okay. Mm-hmm. If money was to know. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Great answer to that question on there. Um, right. Before this? we get to that, did you have anything
4: you want to add, Ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, No, I think I'll leave it at that. Okay.
0: <laughs> 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 We've got a question from. How, how, Linda McKee wants to know how can we pre-order the new book? How can we pre-order the new book? They, they want to read your book, how can they do it?
3: Martella Publishing, uh, they will take orders in the next week or two on, okay. on site, so that's the simple answer to that. We're hoping for publication, pub- the book will be delivered about the mid-o- mid-October okay. and we're hoping to launch. Uh, late last week in October, first yeah. week in November in one.
0: Okay, yeah. fantastic. And uh, anyone here at the tower, please email me as this stuff comes up and I will push it out on our social media and I'll put out our newsletter as well. So um, with that information in it. Thank you. Okay. Um, Anybody else? Yes. Um, Vivian, um,
3: the, the waistcoat from Simon Beckett, how did you hear about that? And how did it arrive? And yeah. did it's you correct. open it or not?
5: It had already arrived when I arrived.
3: Oh, OK. All
5: right. So yes, that's what have to it, yeah.
4: pay yeah. some tribute to the, the people who put the original collection together yeah, and yeah. opened up the tower in 1962. Yeah. Um, Michael Scott owned it and um, John Ryan, who was the secretary of the Joyce Tower
5: Society. and the Niall Montgomery was a member. And oh, yes. and uh,
4: um, John Ryan, yes. Yeah, yeah. Eamon Morrissey was one of the, the people yeah. who worked here. Yeah and Michael Hartnett was one of the early curators. Do
0: you, do you have any memories of Michael Hartnett? Um, as my co-host Dermot is, is quite a fan of Michael Hartnett, so we were wondering if you had any memories I of him? I
4: only met him once, and unfortunately he was um, under the weather at the time, um, but he did identify me and what I did, and informed me that he had done the same job as me many years before.
5: <laughs> I met him once up at the Francis Ledridge Museum, he was giving a lecture, and I found him a very nice, charming man. He was a very good poet as well. Yes, absolutely.
2: Yes? Uh, It might be
4: helpful to mention one thing. The
3: museum has been taken under local management under the County Council, Mm -hmm. and the idea for the book arose uh, among the friends of Joyce Tower
4: as a way of paying tribute. To the early curators at a time of transition, mm-hmm. celebrate what had what had been mm-hmm. contributed by them as we embarked on a new mm-hmm. phase. And the, the museum is now on a sound financial footing mm-hmm. under the local county council, okay. which is an important development.
5: All right. mm-hmm. And also um, the, the volunteers who looked after the museum for 12 years; they're also to be thanked for okay. keeping yes. the museum
0: open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know something we talked about a little bit in an email Robert sent to me is is uh, let me see how I wrote this down about um, developing your skills as a Joyce expert on the job rather than being you know an established Joycean you know
4: yes, so I, I think both of us well, um entered with fairly modest qualifications and um, because were in my case I think because so many people asked questions and it was very important that I knew the right answer so mm-hmm. I was obliged to um, research mm-hmm. and then it just still went from there and of course the place has a library
2: and plenty of
4: time <laughs> to read then. Okay. so I just began from there mm-hmm. and so it, it's funny to look back and think um, when I began I was probably uh, a little i knew mm-hmm. yeah.
3: i think too one of the things since the volunteers did become involved mm-hmm. over 12, 12 years now the amount of knowledge that the volunteers have accumulated through their mm-hmm. own efforts t- through talking to each other through having readings is actually an extraordinary tribute to volunteerism mm-hmm. as a if you like a social concept um, mm-hmm. and they are truly a, a, precious jewel, I think, within the tower. What I would say, though, is that it's, it is equally, or even more so, it's wonderful to have a new curator back in place, because mm-hmm. there is only so much volunteers mm-hmm. can actually do. Um, mm-hmm. And it needs a strong academic and ongoing academic basis mm-hmm. and a foundation, and, and the you know volunteers with the best will in the world won't have the time, the capacity, mm-hmm. or the information base, I think, in which to do uh, that.
5: And it's great that Dr. Alice Ryan, she's actually a Joyce, she's <laughs> mm-hmm. the new curator, Indeed. so that's yes. terrific.
3: Um, yeah. um, I think that's the, is, there has been that kind of um, tremendous kind of development, I think, that's gone on. I mean, yeah. Robert had the had the this, this issue of coming, going out of a tower as volunteers were coming in. Mm-hmm. Alice has the responsibility and the difficulty, shall we say, of placing herself in the tower as the volunteers are there. So it's there, there is definitely a kind of a, a cross-fertilization that goes on now between the volunteers, between uh, between the curators. Um, and I think that can materialize and do very well. Vincent Brown was one of the, the the people who definitely sort of managed to get the volunteer system going, and probably was really the root progenitor of it. He kind of said as a kind of a, you know, almost like a a social revolution kind of thing is that under volunteerism there would be no bosses um and that by and large has worked very well the friends were friends Mm -hmm. but now we are moving into a stage and i think quite a rightful stage where a more structured format will take place we can't run the risk of amateurism and i use that word very advisedly and very kind of I am an amateur and i delighted to be so. So it's that kind of wonders. Again, this idea of where the tower goes in terms of what its target market is, is kind of, it can become, if you like, a, a place that, that creates access and makes access available and readily available and joyfully available. Uh, and I think more and more people will come to the tower and come to Joyce effectively mm-hmm. through the facility being here.
0: Absolutely.
4: Do, Robert or Vivian do you have anything you want to add to that? i um, trying to think what I could add to that. I suppose I um, I spent many years at the um, the Irish Museums Association so I always got a, a great respect for the, the professional curator and the mm-hmm. idea that a museum should be mm-hmm. curator-led mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's There's quite a challenge to working with volunteers. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to get all the the lines exactly right, Mm -hmm. and the volunteers are busy gathering and sharing information. Mm -hmm. It's important that the the information is channeled through to the curator, who can then Mm -hmm. um, keep it and preserve it in the museum,
2: Mm
4: -hmm. as opposed to sending it out the door at the next Mm -hmm. shift. All right,
2: all
0: right, time. Um, we do one more question if we've got one. Oh, sorry, I thought we were going to move to the evening, but go ahead. We, we, yeah. Uh, any other questions? Otherwise we're going to move to another exciting thing. I'll do one last one if, if yeah. anyone else has go one. Go for it.
1: Like upstairs with the recreation in the round room of, of how it would have looked when the guys were here. Um, was there any way or was there ever any attempt made to contact, uh, Oliver St. John's family? to see if they'd have anything left from the furniture he would have actually had here when he was
0: staying here all those years.
4: Um, well, no, I did, I uh, met um, the Gogarty family on various occasions. Um, Gogarty said there was almost things from um, the home in Parnell Square. In Ulysses it's things he's pinched out of the Skibby's room. Um, I don't think any of that furniture was important. And the in any case, Gogarty, um, apart from having half his belongings um, put to the torch in Renval House, um, he also moved to America, so there was very little left. I think actually, the one thing I remember um, Oliver D. Gogarty telling me was that his father never actually stayed in the Tower after he got married in 1907, because his wife told him you'd catch fleas from the pigeons. <laughs> I think as a medical
5: man, he knew
4: otherwise, she was not to be argued with.
2: There
5: wasn't that much uh, furniture anyway, up in the round room.
4: No, as described, no. I mean, I had this job of trying to, to no. reconstruct it, no. and it was interesting itself. And there was Gogarty's description, there was also Joyce's sure. description. Yeah. I mean, Joyce describes the floor as flagged, which it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, he also describes Trench's hammock, which mm-hmm. had nothing to, to be slung from um, until our helpful builders put a couple of steel <laughs> bolts in the wall. I was <laughs> not really very happy about that, but I think the idea was to present how it looked in Ulysses. But they were sitting on um,
5: valises and trunks, as described in the book. And for the, making the film of Ulysses, they just had a few a bed and uh, a shelf and pots in it and um after the film after they'd left they left the room the same for a few days with the bed and and visitors used to come in they'd ask me do you live here
3: (laughs) (laughs) pretty much (laughs)
0: okay all right Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been just a fantastic uh, discussion. Uh, We could probably talk for another hour about your memories, but you're going to have to wait till you get the book. So Tales from the Tower will be out next month. Uh, Martello Publishing. All right, look them up. Um, Thank you so much, Robert Nicholson, Vivian ville Brandon Mm -hmm. O'Brien. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.